Welcome, my name is Loriana Ednanda Saldama, two-time cancer survivor and patient advocate and author. You are listening to Stage Free, a place where we help cancer patients find the tools and resources they need to master survival. Cancer survivorship begins the day you are diagnosed. Now, over time, you may beat it or learn to live with it. Whatever the outcome, you probably wanna talk about it, and that's where we can help. Each week, I will share my insights and personal experience along with notable experts and cancer survivors. Together, we can help patients navigate the complicated road that all survivors must travel. The goal, we want everyone to have an equal chance to not only survive, but most importantly, to thrive. Welcome to Stage Three. Today's topic is cancer care is a team sport. And I'm so excited to talk about this because this is so important. Joining me to talk more about understanding how to build your care team is Dr. Mohammed Jahanzib, who is an oncology specialist with more than 30 years in the industry, specializing in breast and lung cancer. I like to call you Dr. MJ. I know your patients do too. And I am so excited to have you because I call it a pit crew. You call it a team, whatever it is, we need to really rely on a, a whole lot of people to successfully, I say, get to the finish line. Exactly. And I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank so you, sir. I, I, I think everyone knows that uh, they can have an abnormal mammogram or they can find a lump in their breast and they go to their primary care physician who typically sends them to a surgeon who does a biopsy. Then they go back to their doctor, get the biopsy result. They may involve at this point a cancer specialist, most likely a medical oncologist, someone who gives drugs to a cancer patient. They are called medical oncologists. They are internist. First, then they subspecialize in hematology, oncology, and hematology being study of the blood diseases, and they, they go hand in hand in training. Uh, some may be pure medical oncologists. Then they would also involve a radiation oncologist. So once you go through your treatment, uh, which involves all three, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, in whichever order, the order can vary. And then you may be placed long-term on hormonal therapy. Two out of three patients have hormone receptors positive, so they need that long-term therapy. Some antibody therapy may be involved. Immunotherapy may be involved. But then during the course of that time, you know, what's going to happen to the breast? What will it look like, like after surgery? Do you need reconstruction, plastic surgery or not? What happens to your diet, your nutrition? During your treatment, you may need a dietitian. You go through a lot of stress, altered body image. You may need uh, psychosocial support, psychotherapy. You may even need uh, cosmetology uh, yes. to help you with, you know, selecting the right wig. We call hair prosthesis because if we call it a hair prosthesis and give a prescription, then insurance covers for it. And I so, like that you're mentioning this whole long list, the, the breast medical oncologist, the breast surgical oncologist, the radiation mm -hmm. oncologist, the plastic surgeon, the integrative oncologist, because so many times, and I, and that's why I love you and the work that you're doing, because a lot of times not every doctor is looking at the whole patient. Doctors tend to get so focused, and I know there's a big push to start looking more at the whole patient, of just yes. how can we cure this disease? And when you're sitting there, I've been there twice now, when, when you hear those words, you have cancer, the research says patients only hear 10% after that. And then you walk out and you're like, who do I call? What do I do? What just happened? That is very true. And, and that's why it's important to go to a center of excellence if you can, um, because there you'll have everything under one roof. 
not just all these doctors, but all the testing facilities, the imaging equipment, laboratory, and you may even be lucky enough to get a navigator because big institutions now have care navigators who walk you through all these steps. Uh, but uh, usually a medical oncologist becomes the captain of the team because he treats you the longest and he often becomes uh, your survivorship coach also. And I know we'll talk about survivorship later on, but I'm just re-emphasizing the need to have a team, a process of flow. Otherwise, imagine your records scattered all over town in different doctor's offices who don't necessarily talk to each other. We talk to each other through our notes. No one has the time to see 20, 30, 40 patients and also have 20, 30, 40 conversations uh, with other doctors and family, et cetera. There's just not enough time. And I was blessed so when I had um, breast cancer, I was at Penn Medicine, but when I had leukemia, I was at Johns Hopkins. And what was so frustrating, even though I was so blessed to be at, a, at centers of excellence and I had teams when I was diagnosed, there was a whole team in the room. What was frustrating is even when you change because people move or maybe you change for a different reason to a different hospital, that you, I was doing email intros, trying to introduce one doctor to the other saying, hey, can you tell this doctor I have baggage, um, that I don't heal well, that I, and, and trying to relay the information to the doctor. And, and that's stressful. So I hear you when it, if you can have it all in one, under one roof, it's better. Yes. Now, having said that, only 15% of patients get treated at large centers. 85% of the care is delivered in the community. So I also want to emphasize that if you don't have access to a big institution or you live far, there's not a great need to drive 50 miles each way for your care if you can find a good quarterback, good medical oncologist, let's say, who can assemble the team within that community, within that team, because those doctors work well with each other, they know each other, they share patients with each other. And then that one person can assemble the team within the same small town or, or a medium-sized city uh, where there would be a major hospital, for example, where, where they all convene for the tumor board, but at least discuss cases face-to-face -face with each other. And I heard you say the word quarterback, and I know when you and I, when we first met, we were at a, another com a conference called Digital Pharma East. And when I heard you say you can't have a quarterback, just a quarterback or just alignment, I want you to expand on that because I was like, he is the doctor I want to talk to. Well, I'm glad that you like that analogy. Well, just like you can't just send a quarterback out alone with no team uh, and expect that person to win the game because they're excellent. One person cannot win this game. We all super specialize in our positions. And and one byproduct of that, as you mentioned or alluded to, was uh, becoming siloed in your own specialty and not reaching across to others. Uh, so the best doctors who provide the best care are those who liberally reach out to others, assemble a team, work well with other people and share information, communicate and provide the best care for the patient. Yeah, for me, it was so stressful because I know I'm not the only one who shows up with baggage, but coming from AML leukemia, having a delayed healing marker, no, I don't, I don't heal well. And then also knowing I had full body radiation, which puts you at a much higher percentage of more cancer. I had one doctor when I went to another facility saying, you just need a lumpectomy, it's just stage one. And then I said, I'm not doing anything until I talk to my leukemia doctor. He is my quarterback. He saved my mm -hmm. life. He said, nope, I want both breasts gone because I guarantee you there's more. 
And so it was a back and forth. Then they wanted me to, and this is just my brief sidebar. They wanted me to spit in the tube to see what my genetics, my genetic markers were. And I said, I don't have my own DNA. So you're going to need to do a skin punch because I have my sister's blood and it's going to be all messed up. So I found myself having to really advocate for myself and understand my own health history. And what I'm getting at is what you're talking about. If you, if 85% of cancer patients are treated in rural communities or in community centers, yes, you want your oncologist, who is your quarterback, your breast oncologist, to build that team for you in your community. But if he or she does not, you have to be a pain in the neck and say, here's who I want on my team. At the very least, you mentioned five. The breast yes. medical oncologist, that's the one who's going to diagnose you, right? Yes. Then you have the surgical oncologist who in surgery will be with the plastic surgeon and they have like a, a dance in the surgery room. One handles removing the cancer, one handles making it, you know, closing you up and making you look better. And then the radiation oncologist, if you need radiation, then the plastic surgeon, which I already mentioned, and then integrative oncologist to talk about lifestyle. So, um, yes. I, and, and I know that you mentioned there's much more. But yes. how often do you... Actually, I, sorry to interrupt you, but I would be remiss if I don't add a major one. Uh, I didn't mention that because sometimes they're in the background and they, they may not uh, uh, be in the forefront of giving care, but they're radiologists. Those who read the mammograms and the ultrasounds and the MRI of the breast, and many times they themselves do the biopsy without bothering the surgeon because patient is right there when they see something. And uh, if they are equipped for it and they have, uh, you know, some days they are scheduled to just read images, some days they could be doing procedures, they could insert a needle into the tumor and get tissue right there. And in a few places, they would have a pathologist right there who can confirm right then under the microscope that this looks like cancer. And that way they'll know whether they have enough tissue or not for other analyses such as looking for estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, HER2 receptor, and sending tissue these days for genomic analysis for other biomarkers of the tumor. And before so we this, get to the hormone receptors, which are so important to cover, you were talking about the radiologist, and I want to go back to that because I was reading a report of, I mean, this can be human error at times that there is, and correct me because I'm not the doctor, that I read that there is a potential of 30% of breast cancer cases that could be missed by human error and why there's a need to have AI to not replace the radiologist, but work with them to make sure we don't miss cases. Yes. So radiologists are at a disadvantage sometimes because somebody could have um, dense breasts and mammogram is just an X-ray of the breast trying to look for something dense on a less dense background. Uh, in other words, looking for a whitish dot uh, or a shadow uh, on a gray background. But if the background is also white, you'll miss it. Uh, or many cancers that are diffused rather than make one big lump, uh, they are like uh, sand or dust mm -hmm. interspersed in an area. You'll miss that on a mammogram. Uh, and then human retina's capability of uh, discerning shades of gray is far more limited than a computer's pixels and its ability to see the shades of gray. So now there's artificial intelligence uh, incorporated. Actually, just two months ago, there was a major study in Lancet. There have been many such studies before, but this was the largest, 80,000 women randomly assigned to AI detection first and a single radiologist reading the films versus the standard two radiologists read. 
which doubles the workload because you need you know twice as much workforce or man hours to read the mammograms and it showed that ai detected and presented uh, methodology picked more cancers uh, than two radiologists reading the films. Wow! So now AI is here to stay. Now it's going to become a standard of care. And and that's good. what I love about that. Again, not trying to replace radiologists. This is working in conjunction with them because yes. when we talk equity all the time and we talk 80% of patients getting their oncology care at community centers, they may not have the same level of expertise or the same type of equipment. So if you can add AI Yes. I think, imagine what we can do to the success rate or just the diagnosis rate of finding cancers. Exactly. And the beauty of AI uh, these days is it's everything is connected online. So you could be in the most remote part of the world, but nothing is stopping you from transmitting the images to somewhere where there is AI available. So you can just upload your data and AI can still be available uh, through the internet. And, and that's why now the radiologist workload on the one hand will go down a lot, which they were time they were spending on reading mammograms, they can spend elsewhere on other scans. Uh, on the other hand, the quality will improve in terms of uh, percent detection. If you do a thousand mammograms, you'll detect three cancers. But by enhancing either the reading by AI or the imaging by using, let's say, 3D digital tomography or giving contrast enhance, enhancement or doing um, molecular imaging with technetium 99. So there are many techniques now available. And those with dense breasts can have MRI scans, which are very good tests for somebody who's in their 20s, let's say 26, 27-year-old woman who has strong family history and qualifies for early screening. They should not go for a plain mammogram that could be a waste of time and we they talked about that at MRI. one of our episodes about knowing your family history because the fda is saying the, the guidelines right now say that you should get a mammogram you don't need it before the age of 40 unless you have a family history and i yes. always advocate about being your best advocate being a pain in the neck and i even say be a pain in the ass i don't say that often but you have to really push and so talk to me how important it is to say hey I want that ultrasound to make sure it's not missed. I feel I have dense breasts or I have a family history. I'm not 40, but I need, I need a, a 3D mammogram. How do you push and advocate for yourself for this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the key is to be your biggest advocate yourself, like you point out, and you are a living example of that and not take no for an answer. And, you know, there, there are ways to do it politely and uh, firmly and, say, well, I have uh, read in NCCN guidelines, because NCCN now has patient-focused guidelines that any layperson can understand. You can go online, you can read the NCCN guidelines and say, according to NCCN guidelines, I'm at increased risk and I need earlier screening and the uh, preferred modalities are different than the standard mammogram. Mine and was detected from an ultrasound. It was missed by a mammogram. So I'm a yeah. big advocate about ask for the ultrasound. If you yes. can get it covered and you can get it, ask for it. Yes. And ultrasound is is one example. Like I'm saying, the MRI is another example. Contrast enhancement is another method. And biological uh, or molecular imaging is another met methodology. So a good breast radiologist, and again, I emphasize that specialty is key here, 
uh, don't go to a radiologist who's doing five different tests all day long. Uh, find somebody who just uh, is into breast imaging. Every medium to large size city has multiple radiologists who specialize in breast imaging, and they would tell you what the best test for a given individual is. That's great to hear. So now once somebody's been diagnosed, talk to me about staging. What does staging mean in breast cancer patients? A lot of people are confused about how it is staged out. Yeah, so staging, uh, simply put, is extent of spread of a cancer. So localized cancer doesn't take anyone's life. If cancer was always localized, no one would really talk about it, and they would just go to surgeon and have it removed. And that would be the end of the story. Uh, the reason we are all afraid of cancer is its potential to spread to far-off places in the body, like bones, brain, liver, adrenal, you name it. It can go anywhere. And when you are treating cancer, your biggest fear is that it may have already spread. And that's why we do scans to look for the extent of spread. Fortunately, a majority of women in the United States are now detected by screening mammograms, and um, they don't need any elaborate set of scans because in early stage breast cancer, it's a very low yield exercise to look for spread. So we don't look for spread unless, you know, somebody has a very large tumor or you can palpate lymph nodes in the armpit on clinical exam, uh, or there's some other reason because the nature of cancer under the microscope is so aggressive uh, by markers that we say, well, this is highly likely to have spread. Let's look uh, because you, on the one hand, don't want to go on a wild goose chase in everybody because you will find things on scans that are completely unrelated to cancer. Yes. And you go after, you find red herrings and you go after them, do unnecessary biopsy, cause un unnecessary emotional harms and additional unnecessary testing. That's why we have to be very judicious. But on the other hand, if you don't detect spread and start doing fancy things locally uh, to the breast, from lumpectomy to radiation, et cetera, then you're trying to lock the barn after the horse is gone. So it's also important to not miss spread because then you would spare the breast any procedures and you would say this is now throughout the body. This is this is not uh, something treated with a mousetrap and make a better mousetrap. This is termite. You have to tent and fumigate the house. So that's I like that where analogy. drugs come in. Yeah. So when you're so stage, what stages do you not worry about spread? Like stage zero, one, and two, or what stage do you know? Do you can you be at peace that your doctor did not order a PET scan or something else? Yeah, stage zero or one, definitely you don't need uh, any staging. But stage two or three, some patients in stage two, for example, if you're stage two, but the nature of your cancer is very well behaved, it's highly hormone rich, small tumor. And maybe, you know, you have some evidence of lymph node involvement uh, or no evidence of lymph node involvement, but the tumor size is large, otherwise well-behaved. Because even a well-behaved tumor by slowly growing will become sizable over 8, 10, or 12 years in somebody's breast. So that doesn't mean the cancer is virulent, but that means it has had that many years to potentially spread. So in those cases, stage 2, you would use your judgment. Stage three, I would always stage. Stage four, by definition, you know it's uh, gone off to distant places. And then you're not just, uh, you know, waiting in suspense for the results of the scan. You're just trying to count the spots. How many spots has it spread? And you already know it's spread. If and if somebody shows up with a large tumor and 
and you know that they have skin involvement away from the tumor that stage four and you if you know go by their symptoms if they say they have a headache you highly become suspicious of brain spread they say I have back pain you know it may have gone to the spine etc etc so stage zero and one no scans stage three and four we always do scans stage two we use our judgment yeah i know one hard thing for me going from leukemia to breast cancer is i wanted them to like get it out of me quickly and they're like no we have to chase the scans i'm that doesn't help my anxiety waiting and chasing the yeah. scans but i understand that you have to wait to in order to yes. gather all the facts yeah because you cannot undo a mastectomy correct so you, <laughs> but i i worry. also would worry you know I, I was stage one. Thankfully, I caught it because I was paranoid and said I needed to go see the doctor and needed a 3D mammogram, but I didn't have any pain. I was just paranoid and told them I had pain and they detected it. And, and I'm so grateful I did. But sometimes I hear people saying when, when they have a recurrence, like, oh, it wasn't, they didn't have a bad cancer, quote, bad cancer when they got diagnosed the first time. But then when they found it the second time and it came back, it was, it spread. How does this happen? Yeah, so slow-growing cancers like highly hormone-rich cancers that are 100% positive for estrogen or progesterone receptors, uh, if they give off little particles early on, um, it can sometimes take those particles years or decades to grow. So there's no evidence of spread. When you see the patient, you do the surgery, you do all of your systemic therapy, which in case of somebody with very highly hormone-rich tumors is can just be hormonal therapy. We don't give chemotherapy to majority of these patients now. We, we have unnecessarily treated, you know, tens of thousands of women every year with chemotherapy when we did not know that. Now we have uh, genomic analyses, not to be confused with genetic. Genetic testing is done for what you inherited. Genomic testing is done on the tumor to see what's driving it. So when we have those genomic tests, available to us, which can calculate the risk of cancer coming back. And there are tests when they show high risk of cancer coming back, they predict that these patients will benefit from chemotherapy. But if somebody's risk is low on that test or intermediate, which covers majority of patients, if you test 100 patients, 80% plus will be lower intermediate risk, which means that up to that many patients may not need any chemotherapy. So we spare a lot of them an unnecessary chemotherapy. However, having said that, since the efficacy of our drugs is not 100%, those who give off little particles that are dormant in the bone or somewhere else in the body can raise their ugly head 10, 15, 20 years later. In, in breast cancer, they're almost, in, I'm talking about hormone receptor-rich mm -hmm. breast cancer. There are almost as many relapses uh, between year 5 and 15. Oh, I don't want to know that. I'm as sitting here with back pain talking to you and I'm getting a little, no, I, I do want to know that, but I was saying, keep telling me, but you're saying that the recurrence between five and 15? Between years five and 15, almost as many recurrences as in the first five years. Oh, that's, so. that's stressful to hear. Well, I, I say that because there are women who stop taking their hormone therapy two years, three years into it and say, I'm tired of it. I can't do this anymore. Whereas there are some women who should take it for 10 years instead of five. So longer cover is better. And I just uh, 
was at a breast cancer event yesterday and lady just stopped by and started chatting and said, I'm in my 12th year of tamoxifen because after 10 years, my doctor said, you can stop it or if it's your security blanket, keep taking it. So having said that, I'm not advocating going beyond 10 years because there's no data, no evidence. I'm just pointing out that, yes, there are patients who, if they are not having any issues with the drug, not any side effects with the drug, no financial issues with the drug, uh, they feel better on it than off it. There are such people. So if you, if anybody out there listening to this thinks they are crazy, they should know there are other people who are doing the same thing, but without any evidence. I met just a few weeks ago, three people in one day who stopped taking their hormone receptor, their aromatase inhibitor drug after five years, and all three of them had relapsed. I, when I yeah. say I hate this drug, I, I love the security blanket, but I hate it because I've gained 30 pounds, my bones hurt, my body hurts, my back hurts. And then what do they tell you after leukemia? If you have bone pain, let us know. I'm like, well, this pill gives me bone pain. So it makes you crazy to think like, is this a relapse of one thing or the other? However, it is a good security blanket and it's important for us to have it, at least from my perspective. But um, in another episode, I'm going to talk to somebody who decided they she does not want it. It, it is a lot of pain. Um, I know sometimes I'm limping on my power walks, but if for me, after the trauma I've been through being separated from my son for an entire year with leukemia, I, I will limp up every hill and, and do whatever I need to do and I'll keep taking it. But I think it's perspective for every woman and men who may get diagnosed to um, you know weigh the risk benefits for themselves. But I'm with you. If I can stay on at 12, 15, whatever my doctor lets me. I, I also want to go into, there's so, you're so amazing. There's so much I want to ask. If we could just, if I could just kidnap you for a few hours, we can get all this taken oh, care of. But I want to talk about Thank lymph you. node involvement. When I was with my, I did not have lymph node involvement, but my sister who saved my life and I have her DNA, I got breast cancer. Then last year she got breast cancer. And I remember sitting there and they're telling her, oh, it's in four lymph nodes. I remember her saying, if I could just have more time with my daughter. And I remember those words um, what was confusing for both of us, I'm an advocate and the doctor, the, the, uh, breast surgeon who removed the, you know, took the cancer out and removed the lymph nodes. So she had it in four lymph nodes and the surgeon took four lymph nodes out. Then she changed her place of care because of transportation. I couldn't drive her to every appointment. She goes to the new breast, uh, breast oncologist or surgical oncologist and that person says, well, I'm a little worried that your doctor only took four lymph nodes out if four were impacted because I'm worried you might have a recurrence or you might still have cancer or you might have lymphedema. So how do you know as a patient to sit there and question your doctor like, hey, I have it in this many lymph nodes. How many are you going to take out and why? Because some people are a little more aggressive than others. And how do you know what to do? Yeah, I mean, it's a complex issue. First of all, um, it is uh, very true that lymph node involvement is a big uh, prognostic factor. It's also accounted for in staging for breast cancer. And, you know, we have three categories within lymph node involvement. N1 is, you know, three or fewer nodes involved. Four to nine is N2 and 10 or more is N3. So not only does lymph node involvement matter, but how many lymph nodes also matters. Now, in the old days, uh, they used to do what's called axillary dissection. So they would talk up, take a bunch of nodes out. There was thought that maybe 10 ought to be taken, and people didn't realize 
realize that if the number of nodes is not just surgeon dependent, it's also dependent on the diligence of the pathologists. How diligently do they dissect it out of tissue and count them? So it's it was just a common denominator on the surgical pathology report between the efforts of surgeon and the pathologist. And then, you know, a large uh, cooperative group of surgeons now called NRG, they, they used to be called NSABP, National Surgical Breast and Bowel Project. They have single-handedly brought forth the care of breast cancer where it is in the United States by doing systematic clinical trials. And they used to demand about six at least. But um, now that whole thing has changed because uh, a new technique came to fore over the last three decades called sentinel lymph node biopsy. So you basically inject either a radioisotope or blue dye around the tumor or in the central portion of the breast and see which lymph node received it first. That's called the sentinel lymph node. And then if that was negative, devoid of cancer, chances that you'll find cancer in another lymph node is less than 10%, which is considered an acceptable standard to not dissect 90 axilla or armpits unnecessarily uh, for the benefit of a few patients. So now we do sentinel lymph node, and if that's negative, there's no further uh, lymph node dissection. Then so a trial showed that even if you do find one or two positive, uh, because your armpit is in the field of radiation, at least the lower part of it is, um, or lower two-thirds, I would say, uh, you can get away with just doing that procedure and not going further because that drastically reduces the risk of lymphedema if you don't do a full axillary dissection. So that's the current thinking. But even today, if you do a sentinel lymph node procedure and you find four nodes and all four are involved with tumor, then most surgeons would recommend going back to the OR and having a full axillary dissection. And even that means what? The taking more than full axillary dissection means taking more than those four? More nodes out to see if there were additional nodes positive. And the truth is, if you have four positive nodes, even if you have a mastectomy, you still get post-mastectomy radiation therapy. And, and yes, axillary dissection plus full-dose radiation therapy will increase the risk of lymphedema. But, you know, nobody can say there would have been more, would not have been more beyond that is just guesswork. But you already know that four is a substantial enough number of nodes to throw in everything in the treatment domain, um, including radiation and full doses of chemotherapy. Even if you're hormone receptor positive, nobody would not give chemotherapy to somebody with more than four positive nodes. Uh, and now we have new drugs, CDK4-6 inhibitors that you would give in addition to chemotherapy. Uh, one pill is for two years, another is for three years. Um, and, uh, you know, My they are on uh, abemacyclib and ribocyclib. Um, those are their generic names. And then if somebody has BRCA mutations, you would throw in a PARP inhibitor uh, after finishing chemotherapy in addition to hormonal therapy. When, when you so, talk about, just to break it down for people who may not be familiar, because there are so many new terms, when you talk hormone receptor, that like for me, my my breast cancer was HER2 negative, ER, PR positive. So I, the way I explain yes. it is that the ER is estrogen positive, the PR is progesterone positive. So mine was yes. a hormone positive cancer. Yes, so estrogen and progesterone receptors uh, are hormone receptors because they respond to 
female hormone estrogen. Uh, so estrogen acts like kerosene on fire in the presence of these receptors. If somebody is hormone receptor negative, it doesn't matter whether they are uh, taking estrogen supplements or not. Uh, they, they are not going to harm their cancer cells. But if you are ERPR positive, the first order of business is to either block these receptors or deprive your body completely of any estrogen in it. So in somebody whose ovaries are not working, one source of estrogen is gone. Uh, but then your adrenal steroids start converting through your fatty tissue into estrogens through an enzyme called aromatase. So then there's three pills in the market. They're all generic now that are called aromatase inhibitors. They cause a zero estrogen state. And then there's an injection called uh, fulvestrant. Uh, and yes. now there's an oral equivalent of that, which is recommended for second line. But these drugs down-regulate the receptor. So receptor and its ligand interact like a lock and key. Imagine a set of circulating keys in your body and then keyholes all over the place on cells. So the right key fits into the right keyhole and turns it and the signaling starts happening. Just like the old ignition switch and the ignition key. Yes. But if you put some glue in the keyhole so that key doesn't go in or you take away all the keys, that interaction will never happen and cell will not get stimulated to grow. So we Perfect. either can block the receptor, destroy the receptor, or remove all the keys or ligand, which is estrogen. Well, we I love talking to you. We're going to talk to you again and have another episode because we have more to cover, talking about what is metastatic cancer, talking about your uh, genetic testing, talking about survivorship care plans. We're going to talk about that in another episode. But for now, Dr. MJ, it has been a true honor and pleasure to have you on. So, And I want to thank you, Dr. MJ, and also everyone listening, thank you for listening. Our mission here on Stage Free is to help you master survival and give you the tools you need for success. I feel like I've had access to so many brilliant doctors like Dr. MJ, and I can't just keep it to myself. I want to share it with others so we all can feel empowered, educated, and informed. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Stage Free. Join us every week for a new podcast featuring thought leaders and experts will help cancer survivors not only survive, but ultimately thrive throughout treatment and recovery as they learn how to master survival. Learn more about us at armorupforlife.org.